I was talking to my brother-in-law yesterday. He's a president of a seminary back in Virginia. And I said, well, what are you guys in on tomorrow? What are you preaching on? He said, we're in uh, Hebrews chapter 6. And I said, oh, well, I'm in Matthew chapter 5. <laughs> we were laughing a little bit about there's some parts of Scripture that are really tough. I mean, it, it's a tough subject. There are a lot of different opinions on it. It's socially controversial. And uh, so I was sharing with him, well, he said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? I said, on divorce. <laughs> and um, it's the next section. Now, a lot, what I find a lot of commentaries, they just skip over it. Uh, have you ever, you know, I'm looking for something, and they just don't even comment on it. And uh, I thought, why is that? But this morning, my, my prayer is always this, that God will encourage you by his word, which I believe he will do today. As we open our text, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. So if you have your Bible, your iPhone, or whatever device you have, we will take a look at this text, which is right in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. Can you imagine what it would be like if when I looked out at you today and looked into your eyes, I knew everything you were thinking? that make you nervous? Not only do I know everything you're thinking, I know everything about you. Everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, everything you ever will do. I know it. I'm just looking at you knowing that. That would be a little bit unsettling. I think for any of us. But this is what Jesus was able to do because he is God. And as he is speaking this Sermon on the Mount, the hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, his disciples seated around him, spectators out here listening in, religious leaders there to criticize him. He knows the hearts, the minds, the souls, the lives of every single person there. And we see that demonstrated throughout all of Scripture. But he's a good doctor. And this is better than the latest MRI that shows exactly what you need. He knows everything about you. He knows what you need. He knows the problem. And he has the answer, the solution for your life. And he's able to accomplish his perfect will. Jesus was asked we have record of in, in the scriptures, 183 questions. He answers 180 of those 183 questions with another question or a story. It's like I heard, you know, you can just imagine what it would be like listening to him and asking him a question, and he asks you a question. You say, well, why, why do you always answer my question with a question? Why do you ask? <laughs> but that, that was Jesus. He was, he was putting it back to them to help them process, to draw out, for the, for, to help them see by just giving them a lecture. Now, when we get to this text this morning, he wasn't asked a direct question. He is at other times, but he knows what they're asking particularly the religious leaders are wanting to know, what about the law? What about the law? 
And he had stated earlier he didn't come to do away with the law or to lower the standard of the law, but he came to fulfill the law, the law that you cannot meet. What's the standard to get into heaven? We find it in the very last verse of chapter 5. Be perfect. There's no way. There's no way for any of us. But Jesus was perfect, and he offered his life as a sacrifice for you and took your place and made you perfect. And that's amazing. We've talked about that in an earlier message. Where Jesus is always going with us is to the heart, to the heart. And we see this throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount as he speaks and as he unfolds this. The very beginning, we, we begin with blessed, uh, blessedness. Blessed are they, blessed are they. And this really describes what authentic Christianity really looks like. This is what it looks like. It's not about externalism and about performance. The, the, these things are easy for us to measure, aren't they? But he comes to this place now where he is describing why the heart is so important. And he, he uses six illustrations. This morning it will be the third of these. And it, it's, it's an uncomfortable topic, but it's a topic that touches every single person here. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, in other words, I want to expand your understanding of this. He talked about murder. He said the root of that is anger. He talked about adultery. The root of that is lust. Now he's going to talk about divorce, and the root of that is a hardness that comes in our hearts. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23. This is a great verse for you to... It's not in our memory program, so maybe you'll save it for later. Don't overload you, but this is a great verse. It says, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. And Jesus is really reiterating, reiterating that. <clears throat> not, as I said last week, there's not one person here who is not impacted significantly by divorce. Not one. So... Years ago, it may have been the case, but whether directly it's you or a family member or parents or children or close friends or neighbors, it, it impacts every single one of us. My objective, as it has been, is number one, to give you hope. That's what God's Word does. It gives us hope, <clears throat> and the hope is Jesus, and to give you help which I believe is in his word to guide us through that process. So let's look at the text. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This morning we're going to take five looks at this subject and what God says about it. The first look is going to be the plan of God in creation. 
Now we can go to the, the chaos that we have right now, but let's go back all the way to Genesis and God's original intent, how he designed this. Before sin entered into the picture, before things went awry, this is God's intent. Verse 27 and 28 of Genesis says, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created him male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Chapter 2, verses 21 to 24. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord, made, the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh, one flesh. So this is what he is saying. And as I, and as I shared last week on our worldview, uh, my worldview is that God is, he has spoken, and his word is authoritative, and it is sufficient and helpful. And so that's, that, that's my point of view. People that don't believe in God are not going to come to this conclusion. But this is, this is what is concluded by this statement from the Scriptures. One man, one woman, one flesh for one lifetime, as long as they both shall live. That's God's plan. One man, male, one woman, female, coming together in covenant relationship, become one flesh, so long as they both shall live. The purpose of marriage that we're going to find unfolding in Genesis 1 and 2 is two things. Companionship, there's to be companionship, and second, children. So that's God's design. But we know this, when we go from the Garden of Eden, how God made everything, and then we, the next big scene is the fall, everything went into chaos. So none of us are, are living in that place that is unaffected by sin. We know that. All of us have been impacted by the effects of sin. The second view I'd like for us to have, because I think it's really important, is the picture of God in relationship. It's more than just what God did with marriage. There is a picture that is created, and it, and it runs throughout all of Scripture. You'll notice in Genesis 1.26, then God, singular, said, let us. Have you ever noticed that before? Plural. Now, what does that mean? And God said, let us make man in our image. What you're going to find unfolding through all of Scripture is that at creation, the, the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit were all active together as one. You have three who are one. We call this the doctrine of the Trinity. But what is communicated in one flesh relationship on earth is a reflection of the oneness of the Godhead. 
it is also a picture of the oneness of my relationship with God, the oneness with my relationship with Jesus, and my oneness in my relationship with the body of believers. Because he calls us one family, one body. We are one. Jesus in his prayer in John 17 uh, communicates that. So there is a picture that is communicated in all of this. When I, I, I've shared this before, but when, and I don't want to embarrass my wife, but, um, no, but stand up, hon. Why don't you come on up here for a minute? <laughs> I'll just tell you this, that I'll ask for forgiveness later, but. <laughs> now, she's an amazing woman. I mean, I, you know, and most of you all know that, so. And like most guys, we marry over our heads, and I certainly did that. But, you know, when I first got married, I thought, I want to walk with God. I want to walk with God. I want to be a good example, you know, be a good testimony and everything else. And, and she had the same desire. You know, we were two different people come together, and we got married, and we become one. And that is a, it's a, it's a physical and a spiritual union. Now, we're still living in separate bodies. However, probably the greatest thing that we can communicate what God is like is not what I am separately and what she is separately is what we are together because it communicates relationship and 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 see the picture you can go back down down. (laughs) but the and, and this is the way the church is how do how do they how does the world know that we're Christians it says by the love that we have for one one another so we are one body. Marriage comes together. So God is doing something temporal and physical to communicate something eternal, spiritual and eternal. And we need to remember that because I think that's why this has such a significant impact. Our third view, as we look at this, is the problem. The problem with God and our sin. At the root, the reason we have divorce, the reason we have murder and lust and anger is sin. It's sin. Now, that doesn't mean that you sinned or they sinned, but somebody sinned, (laughs) okay? Uh, These are the consequences. We live with an imperfect society we, we are constantly reminded of the impact and the effect of sin upon relationships. And we know that. And at the root, it's a heart problem. This is what he's, he's going for. It's not just what the fruit, you know, we have the root and the fruit. If we just start talking about what we see visibly, and this is the, the Pharisees were famous for this in their religion. It's if you look right and you do right, you're fine. But Jesus is saying, I care about here, because that's really what you are. Not so much of what you do, it matters, but it's who you are. At the root of this, the root of murder is anger. At the root of adultery is lust. At the root of divorce is hardness of hearts. Now, the the hardness of heart, I, I know I threw that in there. You didn't see it in the text. But that's in a parallel text of Jesus talking in Mark 10, verse 5. And, and he says that divorce was happening 
because the, the root was a hardness of heart. In other words, an unwillingness to be sensitive and humble and dependent and to do the right thing. Because typically when, when our hearts are tender and our hearts are obedient, if this takes two people, by the way, <laughs> that God's plan is to reconcile. Would you agree with that? But when it involves more than just you, you don't control that whole situation. Why do we have so much pain with divorce? And I think of of all of the, the things that we go through, this creates the most pain. I think, first of all, because it destroys the picture of the character of God. Secondly, because it rips apart oneness and unity. You can't take a man and a woman... And it, they're not Siamese, it's not a Siamese twins thing. You make a clean line and say, okay, that didn't work. You go here. What happens is when you become one life, there's no way to pull this apart without it really causing a lot of pain and problems. And your children are part of both of you. <laughs> not just physically, the DNA, but emotionally, they're, they're part of you. So this impacts the marriage relationship, the children, and everyone with them. And, and with, with Diane and me, we've had this with our family members, and we've had this with our very close friends. And it, it just, it tears you up. It tears you up. Now, there is a struggle to interpret what Jesus is saying. And I kind of approach this with fear and trepidation. And I, and I always, whenever I'm giving counsel to people, I always tell them there are other views than mine. But I have a great desire to communicate with you what this says and what it means. And, uh, and, and I hope that I can do that today. It says, it has been said, this was their tradition, this was what Moses had instituted, that God did give concession for divorce. In other words, he gave permission. It was never a command. He didn't ever say, go do it, um, in the context of, of the Jews like this. But he, there, there are a lot of passages that are challenging to work through, but it was a concession. It was a permission. And he, as he says in Mark, because of the hardness of your hearts, I'm going to allow this. And you need to give a written, this was the legal, technical. You know, we're having a lot of things going on in our government. I don't know how much you're watching of that, but you're going you're to see a lot of this, the, the technicality, did you follow the law? Well, these Pharisees were so good at following every letter of the law. So they're proud of themselves that they got that, that uh, divorce certificate filled out just right. <laughs> and Jesus is bringing a rebuke to them. They'd crossed all their uh, T's and dotted all their I's. There were two schools, almost sounds like our today. There, there are two schools of thought. One was called Hillel. These were um, the ones that would say, you can, you can put away your wife for any cause, or you can get divorced, it doesn't matter what. If you don't like her, um, burn the toast. <laughs> um, you don't like what she said, as long as you fill out the form, you can do that. The other group, Shammai, would say it, ha- it could only be for adultery. But they also had a narrow view of that. It would be that you were involved with another person who was married, another man's wife. 
But Jesus says, I want to explain this, that none of these are reason, and this is what we call the exception clause, reasons would be except for sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia. Does that sound familiar, porneia? Um, And Jesus is saying it's not just that you had a certain kind of sin, but he said unless you are getting divorced over marital infidelity, and really, and, and porneia means all kinds of sexual sins, which is another conversation we'll have later. But he says, you're, you're out of line. This is what we call the exception clause. Not a command, but a concession. And he says, because of the hardness of your hearts. Now, what is this? There, there, is, there is a, uh, let me just kind of back up here again. There, what I see, two exception clauses, two, two reasons that a Christian could biblically be allowed to have a divorce. One is sexual immorality, and the second would be what we call desertion or abandonment. And that digresses into a whole other conversation of what that is. Is that just physically, you know, a guy or woman just leaves and takes off? Uh, or they have done that emotionally or in their duty and responsibility to care? Or you have conversations of abuse, of all kinds of abuse that are taking place. And I do believe that God allows these exceptions. There's some that would say, no, no, it's just, you, you want God's perfect will. But you know what, in a perfect, if we had a perfect world, we don't. Divorce does happen. It happens. So where do we go from here? The tough part about this is when we read uh, verse 12, it says, but I tell you that everyone who divorces his wife except a case of sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. Now this one, you know, sometimes you just stop and say, wow, how can, how can uh, what I do cause my wife to sin? So there's kind of a rule in interpreting Scripture. When you don't understand with something, go with surrounding texts that you do understand. <laughs> and what I do understand is that I'm responsible for my own sin. My wife is responsible for her own sin. But my sin doesn't make her sin. What I believe this is saying is what Jesus is saying here is that when I sin, it, it, it has an effect upon the entire relationship and, and upon my wife. It can give her the, the stigma of it. So you, because we've gone through this. Now, that's not everyone's view. To me, it makes the most sense of what he's saying because I know he's not saying that one person is responsible for another sin. But we would call that, you know, one, one, one person could be faithful, the other person sin against God and be unfaithful, and, and this person is impacted. Their life has changed as, as a result of this. And, you know, they'll, they'll never, they'll, their lives will never really be the same. So that's, to me, the best I can on, on that text. God does allow for it. It's not his plan. It's not his best design. But in those cases. So the next 
part that we, we move on to is the path to God through Christ. Because I think that, that from where we are, where do you find yourself? You know, and I thought, there, there, there's the guilty party. Maybe both are the guilty party. Maybe it's both of them are guilty. Maybe it's the guilty party or the innocent party. The fact is, either way, God loves you. Okay? It's not like, well, I don't have a plan for you because you're the one that caused all this. You know, when we come to him, he has the answer for us. And he does forgive us for all of our sins. And he does give us hope. Jesus is the path to doing what is right, no matter where you find yourself. You can always do the right thing. You can do the best thing. So what I would say, if, when, when I, if you're involved in a divorce, is number one, you confess your wrongdoing to God. You confess it to one another. You humbly commit to do what is right. You keep your attitude right, your heart right, and you leave the results to God. There's a great text that we'll memorize this next week. Let me just read it to you from Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is how we get our minds back into thinking right. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. The Apostle Paul was a murderer. He's a murderer. David was a murderer, an adulterer. The Bible's filled with imperfect people that had their relationships restored by God. My counsel that I would give to people, and I'll just kind of give this to you. This is, this is personal, and I would always tell people, listen, you can go to someone else and talk to them, but this is the counsel that I would give. Number one, I do believe there are concessions for divorce. It is not the first and best option. I'm always going to be saying, listen, I want to help you work through this. I'm always going to do that. If at all possible, as long as God's there and you've got two people, we're going to pray and we're going to work toward this. I have never counseled a person to get a divorce. But I, I have told them you were, you were within your rights to be able to do that. But I would counsel you, let's, let's seek to restore this. I have many times recommended separation. If there's abuse going on, someone's life is threatened, if people need some space to be able to work through these things, and it's not just separate, but to separate with good counseling to be able to work together. If and when divorce happens, it happens, okay? And, and when it happens and divorce, it's, I don't believe, well, yeah, but you got divorced, but in God's eyes, you're still married. I don't, I don't believe that. I think when you're divorced, you're divorced. And it happens. And you may be part of the problem, bigger part of the problem, smaller part of the problem, but now you stand in this place. I would... I would always counsel to seek reconciliation until the other person has either died or remarried. Because once, once they've died, of course, you can't reconcile. Once they've married someone else, you can't reconcile. That would be my, my counsel.
And then people say, what about remarriage? I would say this, that first of all, take a deep breath. (laughs) And let's not just jump into something else. But I do believe that a person, once they're divorced, is free to remarry if, if, if it is irreconcilable. Okay, if it's irreconcilable. But that should be very thoughtful, very prayerful, taken very seriously, and under the counsel and direction of the Word of God and a pastor and other people. Because what happens to a lot of people, they'll rebound or just jump right back into something else. And it's not good. And I would say the same thing before a couple that's never been married. Is, is it, you know, number one, you both need to be believers. You have to have the same, same worldview. And the Lord makes that clear. You need to be walking with the Lord and committed to this covenant that you're making. And be really mature and prepared for that next step. And I put all those things into play. So let me, let me end with this last view. We've, we've talked about the plan of creation, the picture of relationship, the problem of sin, the path to Jesus, to God through Jesus. And we conclude with the promise of God for eternity. If you have gone through a divorce, Satan is going to use this to destroy your life. He wants to just rob you of every bit of joy you've ever had. I'll just promise you that. He's going to make you feel like a second-class citizen, like I blew it, I can, life can never be good. There are too many examples in this book of God making life better than ever. And the beauty that God can bring after great tragedies. Do not let Satan have his way. In the church ought to be the place where you are most affirmed. But it always hasn't been that way. Well, you've been divorced. Realize that God does affirm you. Let me read that. This is one of the great texts in all of of Scripture. Romans 8, verses 1 and 2. I want you to let these words sink in. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the Spirit of the life in Christ Jesus, has set you free from the law of sin and death. Did you hear that? No condemnation. No condemnation in Jesus. He set you free. There's a song that uh, our music team does, I am who you say I am. (laughs) Sometimes you just got to say, it's not how I feel. It's not what the world's opinion is. I am who you say I am. And I am this person. I am not condemned. I am set free. And my future is bright. My future is bright. You anchor your life in these promises of God. And as I said before, the objective of my message to come back to is hope is in Jesus. Jesus is the answer to every problem, to the need for eternal life, the need for your joy, the need for your forgiveness. Jesus is your answer to have a personal relationship with Him. And secondly, He gives you the help that you need. And so when you you take a man like David, 
And I, and I love this story because he starts out really well, but then he crashes and burns. You remember, do you remember the story of King David? You know, David at, at a weak moment lusted after a woman, led to adultery, tried to cover it up, murdered her husband, took her in as his wife. But all through the rest after David dies, God always refers to David as this, the man after my own heart. So the Christian should not hang his or her head. Whether you're the cause of divorce or the victim of divorce or party however, from where you are right now, we can do the best we can and we can have joy and know that I'm accepted of God and I'm accepted by the body of believers. So we live with thanksgiving. As Jesus puts his penetrating gaze on you, he sees everything going on in here, everything about your life. And he wants to heal that heart. That's what he wants to do. He is the only one that's able to do that. So my prayer is this. You know, as I look out, I see a lot of your faces. I, know, I don't know your whole story. I'm not like Jesus, that's for sure. Um, but I know, I know bits and pieces of a lot of stories in here. And what a testimony of the goodness of God and the forgiveness of God, isn't it? It's just such a blessing that we have. And these are the things that we need to just hold to and encourage one another daily and anticipate the day someday we're in heaven. So don't let divorce, I know it's, it's hard to, to work this through, rob you of your joy because your joy is founded in Jesus, not in your circumstance. Let's bow together as we pray.